As I'm sure you read yesterday in his blog, Pastor Mark is at home recovering from Bell's palsy. He sends his warmest greetings to you all. He's in great spirits, and he looks forward to being back with us really soon. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to read his blog, we've linked to that in this week's guide, and you can also sign up to receive our Saturday email bulletin in which the blog is sent out every week. Uh, Right now, Pastor Mark doesn't need any practical help, but he would love you to continue praying for him and for his healing. And if you want to write a card to him, you're welcome to mail that to the church, or you can drop it off at the front desk, and we will make sure to get those cards to him. But I want to invite us to pray for Pastor Mark right now. So would you join me in praying for him? Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of Pastor Mark to this congregation over many, many years. He has been your servant. And Lord, in light of that, we ask that you would heal him. In the name of Jesus, we speak healing into his face, into his nervous system. We ask that you would uh, remove all the afflictions that he is facing at this time and bring him uh, a deep, overwhelming sense of peace and comfort in the midst of what is going on. And Lord, we speak against the enemy. Um, we cast him out in the name of Jesus. We resist him and command that he flees in Jesus' name. There is nothing that will prevent your mouthpiece from being able to declare your word. We pray that now over Pastor Mark, and we ask that you would bring him back to us, that he may declare the truths that are contained in your word to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Ellis. I'm really glad that you are joining us today, whether you're here in person, you're joining us online, or watching this at a later point. Over the next 25 minutes, I'm going to share a message with you that I hope reframes the paradigm with which you are living so that you might be enabled to experience the fullness of life that Jesus has on offer to you. Recently, my in-laws were visiting with us, and my seven-year-old son loves to try and get them to play video games with him. Uh, Particularly, he likes to have his granddad play with him, and actually, I think his granddad kind of likes it, judging by how much he played it on their recent trip. But an interesting thing happens when someone who's unfamiliar with video games gets, gets hold of a controller, especially in a certain type of game, a game where you're controlling a flying vehicle of some description, like a plane or, or a spaceship, or one of those carts in Mario Kart, when you go off the blue jump and it turns into a glider, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When you are in the air in one of these vehicles and you're controlling it, sometimes you want to go up or, or you want to go down. And, and if you want to go up, instinctively what you do is you push the control stick upwards. But actually the very opposite thing happens. When you push the control stick upwards, you end up going down. And if you're not quite sure what I'm talking about, then take a look at this video. It'll explain everything. All right, so if I want to go down, I push up. And if I want to go up, I down. Okay, you get that? You push down to go up, up to go down. I won that race, by the way. (laughs) The way up is down. Everyone say that with me. The way up is down. And in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to find that the same is true in Jesus' life And the same is true in our lives. If we want to go up, we have to push ourselves down. 
We're continuing our journey through Luke's Gospel, one of the four biographical accounts we have of Jesus' life. We're about one-third of the way through, and we've seen Jesus do incredible things. He's healed the sick, he's calmed the storm, he's cast out demons, he's raised the dead, and the question that has been on everyone's lips is, who is this Jesus? We've actually heard it asked three times already in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 5, the Pharisees asked it. They said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? And then in chapter 7 at a dinner party, the guests ask it. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? And then again in chapter 8, the disciples ask it. They say, who is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Everyone is asking, who is this Jesus? And so Jesus decides at this point in his journey to kind of flip the script on his disciples. He decides to turn the question back around on them. And here's how Luke records that moment in chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Now it happens that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, my mother began working as a PE teacher at a private girls' school in England. It was upper class, very prim and proper. Uh, She'd been teaching there for three months when it came time for the staff Christmas party, and the the party was to be hosted in the home of the headmistress. You would call her a principal, but but we're much more proper, so she's a headmistress. At one point in the evening, my mother got into a conversation with two other teachers. One of them she knew, but the other one she'd never met before. It became apparent in the course of the conversation that this teacher, whom she didn't know, knew who she was. And it was actually kind of becoming increasingly awkward for my mum. And so she decided to take matters into her own hands. So she stretched out a hand to the teacher that she didn't know, and she said, I'm really sorry. I don't know who you are, but my name's Anne White, and I'm the new PE teacher. And this woman extended her hand, and in the poshest English accent that you could possibly have, she said, Pauline Davis, headmistress. (laughs) My mother didn't realize whose presence she was in. And the crowds didn't realize whose presence they were in when they were with Jesus. They knew he was someone special. The crowds kept getting bigger and bigger. But in a private moment with his disciples, Jesus turns to them and he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? And it becomes apparent that the crowds really, they aren't sure. They think Jesus is is potentially one of three different people who've been raised from the dead. He's either the, the recently beheaded John the Baptist or he is Elijah, one of the greatest prophets from Israel's history, or he's another one of the prophets who has been raised from the dead, potentially a reference to Moses. Everyone has opinions about who Jesus is, but none of them are right. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, and then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
Now, I'm sure today many people think that that word Christ is Jesus' last name, like White is my last name, right? Ellis White, Jesus Christ. But actually, the Christ is a title. It's like pastor for me. Christ was the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it literally meant anointed one, one who's been anointed. But in the first century, there was a a lot more that went with the title, the, the Christ of God, than just one who was anointed by God. See, at the time Jesus was speaking, God's people, the nation of Israel, they were ruled not by their own king, but by the Roman emperor, Caesar. And God's people longed for a return to the days when they had their, their own king who would rule over them. And they had focused their hope on someone that they believed was going to do this. And who was that someone? The Christ, the Messiah. They believed that the Christ was going to be a, a perfect king, chosen by God, who would come in and triumph over the Romans and sit upon the historical throne of King David, reunite Israel, and usher in an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. And so when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ of God, that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking this Jesus is that king, he's going to overthrow the Romans, sit on the throne, peace and prosperity is going to rule. And in one sense, Peter was right. But in another sense, he was wrong. What follows is Jesus' explanation of what it's going to look like for him to be the Christ. And yes, eventually it's going to involve him being crowned the King of Kings. Eventually it's going to involve him overthrowing the powers of this world. Eventually it's going to involve him uniting together God's people. Eventually it's going to involve him ushering in an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. But Jesus is about to tell his disciples that the way up is down. Before any of that exaltation of Jesus is going to take place, first he's going to face humiliation. Let's read how Luke records what Jesus says next. Verse 21, and Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, that's how Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The way up is down. Jesus doesn't deny what Peter says about him being the Christ. In fact, he implicitly affirms it by saying to his disciples, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. But then Jesus goes on to explain why they shouldn't tell anyone. Because being the Christ means a totally different thing than what people are expecting. Jesus is going to suffer, be rejected, and die. That doesn't sound much like a conquering king, does it? This wasn't the Christ that Peter was thinking of when, when he declared, that's who you are, Jesus, the Christ of God. This isn't what people are expecting. But for Jesus, the way up is down. Jesus must go down in suffering, rejection by the religious leaders, and in death before he is then exalted in resurrection and ultimately ascension to his heavenly throne. The way up is down. 
And you might ask, why? Why does Jesus need to suffer and die? Surely, you know, if he really is God, he could have just come in, conquered the Romans, and people would just crown him as king, right? But here's the thing. Jesus' mission is so much bigger than just the people of Israel. Jesus' mission is, is so much bigger than just restoring peace and prosperity to one nation. Jesus' mission is to the whole world. Jesus' mission is to rescue the entire world and restore it to its intended state. And what's holding the whole world captive is not the Romans. What's holding the whole world captive is a spiritual enemy who is holding us captive to our sin. The Hunger Games. Any of you heard of The Hunger Games? It's a, a trilogy of novels. It later became some movies. It's set in a dystopian future where children from each of the remaining tribes of North America are sent into an arena to battle against one another to the death. And in the second of the novels in that series, there's a moment when the protagonist, Katniss, is about to re-enter the arena. She's already been in once, she came through, didn't die, and she's got to go back in and do it all again. And at this point, her mentor says something to her that I think is particularly significant. Here's what he says. He says, remember who the enemy is. You see, it'd be really easy when Katniss gets back in the arena to think that the people she's fighting against are her enemy. But by this point in the story, she's come to realize that the real enemy is the tyrannical president who lies behind the abhorrent system and structure of the world in which she lives. And that in order to bring freedom and salvation, not just to her own tribe, but to all the tribes, she has to fight the real enemy, not the enemies that she sees in front of her. She's not to fight against the others who are in the arena, who are, who are caught just as she is in the midst of this oppressive system, but she's to fight against the powers that lie behind the very system itself. And Jesus is, in effect, saying the same thing. He's saying the real enemy isn't the Romans. <laughs> They're nobodies. <laughs> They're caught just like you. The real enemy is Satan, and he has held you captive by your sin. And the real victory is not going to be won on, on the battlefields against the armies of the Romans or against the armies of any nation. The real victory is going to be won on the cross against the powers and principalities of darkness. And the way to win that battle is through sacrifice. The way up is down. And on the cross, Jesus did indeed triumph over all of the powers of darkness. But how did he do it? By laying down his life, sacrificing himself, paying the penalty for the sin of the whole world. And in this way, he left Satan powerless. If our sin is gone, if our debt is paid, Satan has no power over us. Jesus crushed Satan in that decisive moment of victory upon the cross. But for that to be possible, for that victory to happen, Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected, and he had to die. 
The way up is. And once Jesus has explained this to his disciples, he takes it a step further. He goes on to tell them that not only is the way up down for me, but the way up is down for every single person that would follow after me. If you were to follow me, he says, your entire life has to be lived by this mantra, the way up is down. Let's continue verse 23. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Did you know that on the online marketplace Etsy, you can buy a necklace that depicts Jesus sitting in an electric chair? Kind of repulsive, isn't it, right? You get like this, this gut reaction of, ugh, just feels wrong. That's exactly how a first century Jew would have responded to the image of a, the Christ on the cross. See, the cross was an image of torture and execution. Today, it's an image of of hope for millions, billions. But back then, that's not what it was. And so when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, the cross, taking up your cross, that's what it's going to look like to follow me. What he's really saying to them is, you're going to have to enter into torture and execution if you're going to come after me. That's a bold word. Taking up your cross was what criminals did. It's a metaphor that Jesus is using to say, you are going to have to die. Die to yourself. And he says, take up your cross daily. Every single day you must die to yourself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If we are to come after Jesus, we must deny ourselves and die to ourselves, to our wants, to our desires, to what we want, what we feel every single day. We must choose to put Jesus and what he wants first and deny our own flesh. The way up is down. The cultural moment in which we live doesn't really like this concept of self-denial. Carl Truman, who's a Christian professor at Grove City College, recently published a book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He, He uses it to explain how we've come to this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And in it, he says that our culture has come to believe that if we're to be truly ourselves, we have to prioritize our inner psychology, what we call our feelings or intuitions. In other words, if we're to really be truly human, we have to do what we feel inside. Follow your heart. You do you. 
In our culture, that is the way we are told we should live. Don't deny yourself. Live out yourself. And in fact, denying yourself isn't only something that's hard or or not preferred. It's actually come to be viewed as something that's morally wrong. If you choose to deny yourself and submit to some external standard, some external expectations, our culture now views that you are morally in the wrong, that you should not do that. No one should have a right to tell you what to do. Only you should be able to figure that out. And you need to listen to your heart. You need to listen to your feelings. You need to listen to your intuitions. And it would be wrong to do otherwise. This whole world is pushing against us when it comes to self-denial. It's hard to begin with, right? But the world around us is telling us, not only is it hard, but that's not the way to live. That's the wrong way to live. And yet Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus calls us to conform to his image, not to our feelings, The way to truly be who God has made us to be is to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. If we are to find our lives, we must lose them. If we are to find life, we must die to ourself. And honestly, I think intuitively, we get this in a lot of areas of life. We understand that this concept makes sense. Recently, I was talking with my son, Ezra. He's fallen in love with the game of soccer. And we were talking about Lionel Messi, who's one of the greatest players of all time. And I said to him, Ezra, Lionel Messi didn't get to be the greatest player of all time by always doing what he felt inside. He didn't get there by always doing what he wanted. He got to be the greatest player of all time by showing up and practicing and training, even on the days when he didn't want to. He got to be the greatest player of all time by going through the motions even when his heart wasn't in it. I said, if you want to be successful in sport, if you want to be successful in life, very often you are going to have to choose to do the very opposite of what you feel inside of you. You know what we call that? Self-denial. Denying yourself. The way up is down. And Jesus says the same thing. If you're to join him in his mission of seeking and saving the lost, if you're to follow him, you've got to deny yourself. If you're to be for the one, as we've been talking about, for those in our lives who don't yet know him, we have to put them first and ourselves second. We have to deny ourselves for their sake. If we are to elevate others, as we talk about in our mission statement, we must lower ourselves. We've got to deny ourselves in order to elevate others. This is what the Christian life is all about. And we have opportunities to practice this on a a daily basis. And when a friend says something hurtful to us, and, and we just want to hurt them back, when we're tempted to express our anger at someone who cut us off in traffic, when our kids make another mess or have another argument with each other and we just can't bear the thought of having to clean it up, when our boss asks us to do a task that she knows that we hate to do, when our spouse needs to talk to us, but there's a game on, when our neighbor's dog won't stop yapping and all we want to do is give him a piece of our mind. Self-denial is something we have daily, hourly opportunities to practice. 
But self-denial is hard, right? It is not easy to do that. It doesn't come naturally. You know, I think there's a reason why the world has crafted a, a way of thinking that says you should be true to who you are inside. It's easier. This is the hard way. But it is something that the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given to us can empower us to do. And it's something that I think the Holy Spirit can strengthen us in and build us in. Actually, I think self-denial is like a muscle. The more we practice it, the more we work it, the stronger the muscle gets. But the less we do it, the more the muscle atrophies, the weaker we become at self-denial. And if you listened to that list and you went, yep, 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 every single one of those things, that's me, then there's a tried and tested way to build that muscle of self-denial, a tried and tested way to create an environment in which the Holy Spirit can transform us and strengthen us so that we can respond to Jesus' call to deny ourselves. The church has practiced it for centuries, and it is called fasting. Fasting is when you choose to abstain from something for a limited period of time so that you might grow in your faith. It's a way to deny yourself something you think you need so that you might learn to rely more fully on the God who provides all your needs. And practicing fasting is an incredible way to strengthen that muscle of self-denial. At the beginning of this year, I chose to fast from alcohol for 90 days. A friend of mine had done it at the end of last year, and it really challenged me and convicted me about my relationship with alcohol. Since the beginning of the pandemic, it had become habitual for me to have a drink at the end of the day. To begin with, in those early days of the lockdown, when like, life was just kind of hell if you had kids at home, it was one thing to look forward to at the end of the day. And I know you're laughing because you were there. <laughs> but that one thing to look forward to just kind of stuck. And as I look back last fall, as my friend was practicing this, I realized I've probably had a drink every night for maybe the last two years. So I said, I need to change that. I'm going to fast from alcohol. For 90 days, I'm going to say, God, I don't need it. I need you. And I'm only 70 days in. I've still got a little bit to go, so keep praying for me. <laughs> but it's been positive in many, many ways. It's taught me that I don't need a drink to relax after a stressful day. It's taught me I don't need a drink to celebrate after a good day either. It's also forced me and caused me, when I am feeling down, stressed, negative emotions, to press into my relationship with God, to press into my relationship with my wife, to press into my friendships with others. It's drawn me closer in all of those relationships. And it's strengthened that muscle of self-denial. Now, although... I've been fasting from alcohol. More commonly, the church has chosen to fast from food. Historically, actually, the church has fasted from food in the season we find ourselves in right now, the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days and Sundays leading up to Easter. 
Often people will choose to fast one day a week during Lent, or one meal a day, or fast from particular types of food. And in place of eating, the church has turned to prayer, to seeking God, putting into practice the words of Jesus, deny yourself and follow me. So I wonder, since we're in the season of Lent, have you ever tried fasting? Is it something maybe you'd be, if you haven't, you'd be willing to try, or something you've done in the past, but it's not a part of your your personal spiritual practices right now? Maybe it's something you'd be willing to do, again, in order to exercise, work out that muscle of self-denial, to build that strength within us. If so, if, if you'd be willing to try it, maybe it's something you could do over the next four weeks in the lead up to Easter. Maybe you could choose to fast from food. No, not the whole time. Let's be realistic here. But maybe one day a week over the next four weeks, or, or, or one meal on a certain number of days over the next four weeks. If you've never done this before, take it slow, take it easy, make sure you drink lots of fluids and maybe even drink fruit juice just to keep your blood sugar level up. But maybe it's something you could try. Or if if fasting from food wouldn't be good for you because of health reasons, maybe you could consider fasting from alcohol or maybe something else. Maybe it's fasting from social media or fasting from watching your favorite news channel or, or anything that's a part of your life on an everyday basis and saying, you know what? If someone were to look at my life, they would say, it looks like he needs that thing. It looks like she needs that thing. And to say, you know what? I'm going to say for the next four weeks, I don't need that thing because I have everything that I need in God. And I believe that if we practice that, if we create this this space in our lives, God's Holy Spirit will enter into it and begin to change us and transform us and strengthen that muscle of self-denial so that when we have those opportunities that present themselves on an hourly basis, we are stronger and more able to say the way up is down. Jesus demonstrated that for us on the cross. He died in our place, suffering the death we deserve to die, And as a result, he's been exalted to the highest place. And he calls us to the same. Deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. And if you want to practice that, if you want to grow in that, if you want to strengthen that muscle of self-denial, fasting is a great way to do that. So maybe, maybe the Lord's calling you to give something up in these next four weeks in the lead up to Easter. Why don't we take a moment in prayer right now to just ask the Lord to search our hearts and reveal to us anything He wants to. Lord, we thank You for the death of Jesus Christ. We thank You that our sin has been forgiven, our debt has been paid, and that all those moments when we have not denied ourselves, when we've followed our flesh, when we've done what we know to be wrong, we thank You that we've been forgiven, we've been set free, Thank you that you have triumphed over our spiritual enemy and that we do not stand condemned, but that when you look at us, you do not see our sin, but you see your son, Jesus. You've clothed us in robes of righteousness that are his, and yet they've been given to us. So Lord, we come to you now and we say, search our hearts, search our lives. Lord, is there anything that we are relying upon, maybe, that we act as if we need in our lives that you might be calling us to give up 
to practice that act of self-denial. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. Show us if there's any grievous way in them. Lead us in that way everlasting, following after Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you fall now upon us? We can't do this in our own strength. We need your power. We need your presence. So Holy Spirit, come. Fill us up. That we may be enabled to follow after Jesus. The one who gave himself for us. The one who lived out that mantra, the way up is down. Who humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Would we be like Christ in whose name we pray. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. 
To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.